Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. Voters don't know that we have policy solutions for this stuff. They actually don't know that we can solve this. It feels unsolvable. It feels uncontrollable. It feels scary. And that's where we get some apathy, where people don't even want to think about something that is so scary that they have no power to fix. Our job is to say we have the solutions. They're there. We have champions like Senator Becker working hard on them in Sacramento. The challenge is we don't have the political leadership yet that is investing in them and scaling them at the rate that's necessary. Hey, everyone. I've noticed that no matter who I talk to, I keep hearing about the importance of government action for addressing climate change. Laws, public programs, and incentives are critical to speeding up decarbonization protecting the environment, and ensuring that historically underserved communities aren't left behind. Much of the climate policy we need will happen at the state and local level, and there's perhaps no state more influential than California. And so I was thrilled to talk with California State Senator Josh Becker and Mary Creesman, the CEO of California Enviro Voters. They're both working hard to make sure California continues to be a climate action leader, and they provide some great insights to what we can all be doing. So let's dive in. Senator Becker, Mary, welcome to Invested in Climate. So great to have you both here today. Great to be here. Great to be here. So we're recording this episode shortly after much of the world was surprised to hear that the U.S. Senate had actually made some real progress towards a climate deal. Have you both been celebrating already? Absolutely. Here's what I would say is we're not done yet, though. We still have to get it passed. We still have some more votes we have to round up. It is exciting to hear that Manchin has agreed to a deal. And there's a lot in this bill to really celebrate once it's truly passed. There's also some tough things in the bill that roll us back a little bit. But overall, this is a huge step forward if we can get it across the finish line. But we still have to get it across the finish line. Yeah, and I'd say absolutely. I mean, there's lots to like. There's lots of money in there for incentives. It's not really a policy bill as much, but there are incentives which will help us move the ball forward for sure. Great. Well, we'll make sure to dive deeper into the bill a bit later, but let's first learn a bit about both of you. Senator Becker, start us off. Tell us what is your current role and what is it that you're up to most days? So I'm a state senator for District 13. This is 1 million people. We have 40 state senators. We represent 1 million people. 
uh, from really the thing about the border of San Francisco uh, down to Sunnyvale. So really all of Silicon Valley is my constituency. And climate has been a tremendous focus of mine for many years. Uh, you and I probably met on Clean Tech for Obama or or a full circle fund to one nonprofit, one policy organization that I co-founded on to work on climate, although full circle other issues as well. And I started my career working for the EPA in D.C., and it's been a theme. And now I get to dive in every day on all the wacky aspects of climate policy, and I love it. Mary, what about you? Tell us about your role and the work you're doing. Yeah, so I'm the CEO of California Environmental Voters. We're a statewide organization that has multiple entities, C3, C4, political action committees. And at the core of what we do is we believe that we have the solutions to solve the climate crisis. We know we're like 95% there on technologies, everything. We know how to make clean energy. We know how to make our communities and landscapes more resilient. We know how to transition our buildings and our transportation to electrification. Those are the things that are going to protect us from the worst of the climate crisis and protect us from what's happening right now. What we don't have, the real problem for us solving the climate crisis is we don't have the political will or power to do it, make these investments in these solutions at the rate and scale that science tells us we have to. So what my organization uniquely does is we focus on building that political power. We believe that California is the global catalyst to solving the climate crisis and advancing justice. And just as in California is that global catalyst, Enviro Voters is that catalyst for California to build that political power and prove that we can actually do what we need to do to protect our collective the future. So that's the work our organization does. We do it by electing champions, expanding who can vote, holding people who are in elected office accountable, and then passing and implementing these policy solutions I mentioned. Those are the three areas of focus, and we do it at the local, state, and federal levels. Mary, let's zoom in right there to hear about the different levels of government and their role in climate action. There's so much news coverage around climate policy at the federal level. And there's less as you get closer and closer to where you actually live. How should listeners understand the importance of what's decided at a state or local level versus what happens in Washington? So here's what I would say is federal action is essential, but it will never be first and it will never be boldest. When you look at any movement and any big policy change, any big shift from a society perspective or economy perspective, it never happens from the top down in the U.S. Never. It usually is you start to see movement in states. You start to see movement on the grassroots level. And once you have enough support, once you've proven these models enough, once you've created policy solutions that are replicable and scalable, then you see federal adoption, then you see federal implementation. So while we all should be putting extreme pressure federally, um, we can't be distracted by that as the only way we're going to do this, because that will be how we lose. If we forget to invest in state and local jurisdictions, regions that are proving these models, they can push harder and faster than we can federally. The quicker we adopt locally and statewide, the quicker we'll get massive federal action. That's the truth. So when you want to see, get some hope, get some inspiration, find out where the future of climate action is, you need to look at states and you need to look at regions. That's where you find the future of climate actions. That's where you get hope. That's what's going to be replicated and scaled if we do this right. Again, for financial support and incentives, which we're hopefully going to get now, then a DC can be great. But 
there is not a regulatory really role for Congress. There's not a federal agency other than FERC, which is actually separate from a Congress. There's really not that role. So I mentioned starting clean tech for Obama, and that was great. We really galvanized the clean energy community nationally to support the president. And, you know, he certainly did do some very good things with executive orders and some policy, but, you know, we still got stymied. Even cap and trade, which is ultimately a market-based solution, you know, we could not get it passed. We got it passed. The House could not get it passed. The Senate. So, you know, and unfortunately, the Republican Party, by and large, with the very few exceptions, but certainly an elected office, have not been willing to talk about climate change, even talk it to very recently, even talk about man-made climate change, you know, our role in climate change, and have really just not been willing to acknowledge it as a reality. And so just very hard at the federal level to get real tough policy work done, or even, you know, again, even solutions, market-based solutions like cap and trade, where at the state level, we have that authority. All the government agencies are at our disposal here in California. We've got the Energy Commission. We've got uh, CARB, our Air Resources Board. We've got the PUC. And all of these can be, we can influence from the legislature and we can pass laws that directly impact people's lives and, and help us move in these directions. So that's really the power that we have and the opportunity that we have. And, and that's why I think, as Mary said, states need to lead. And California is actually not leading on all the issues now. We do see some other states uh, that are taking the mantle in certain areas, Washington State, Colorado, uh, New York. But we really need this, this constellation of states to lead. So I think that's a great area to focus. To say that California is a leader in the climate efforts is probably a wild understatement, really. For decades, the state has blazed a trail in environmental policy, providing an example and often actually creating standards that other states and other parts of the world adopt, and also stepping into lead when the federal government doesn't. So tell us a bit about the important role the state of California has played in protecting the environment and fighting climate change. Sure. I'll start and then let Mary weigh in on this one for sure, because she's seen it at the Sacramento level for many, many years. California needs to lead and has led in many ways. For example, with renewable portfolio standards. So this is what percent of your energy use comes from renewable energy. And we said 5% and then 15%. People said that was crazy. Then we said 25%. Oh, no, I never hit that. And we said 33%. Uh, now we have a, then 50%. Now we've got 60% of renewable energy by uh, 2030. And that's an example of where California's led, of course, with cars and automobiles and what they call cafe standards, with average mile standards, with clean air is an area that we've led. We are the fifth largest economy in the world just as a state. So whereas the rest of the country nationally, we really struggle on clean energy policy. In California, we've got the opportunity to lead and we have to lead. But it also is a struggle every day, as I'm sure we'll discuss. But that's really the backdrop. Mary, over to you. Yeah. I mean, I think by any standard, when we look at what other states or countries are doing, California is far ahead and continues to kind of prove what we can do on the climate crisis, that we can do really aggressive, bold things. I think at the same time, we have the reality that two things. One, some of the biggest things we've done to act on climate happened up until 2018. And 
some of them, you know, Governor Brown's executive order about carbon neutrality by 2045, SB 100, mandating 100% clean energy, two huge things that happened in 2018. A mere months after that, we get a report from the UN climate panel that we have until 2030 to make these big changes in order to stop the worst of the climate crisis. So as exciting and groundbreaking as those were, and they are, at the same time, science is telling us we have to do more. And unfortunately, champions like Senator Becker continue to author really powerful policy to move us forward. But the state legislature has been gridlocked a little bit since 2018. And that's part of the reason why we haven't seen massive movement in other states, too, because when California acts, then other states act. When California passed 100 percent clean energy, dozens of states followed suit a few years afterwards. So kind of both are true. We true. We've done really phenomenal things. Unfortunately, science says we have to push harder and we've struggled to do big things since 2018. Given California's record and also Governor Newsom's vocal support for climate action, one might think you actually have an easy job. I guess, though, you probably don't, and that every day is a fight. Tell us about some of your priorities, some of the most important things that you think California should be doing right now, and what's getting in the way. Senator Becker, let's start with you. Well, in terms of right now, I mean, you have to look holistically at greenhouse gas emissions. We have 420 million metric tons every year of emissions. We have to get that to zero. Just like on a global level, we have 50 billion. We have to get that to zero. That's the way we have to look at it. And therefore, it's not one silver bullet, but you have to look at each sector. So for cars, so 50% is transportation. That's everything from you know, pasture autos to medium and heavy duty trucks. And so, you know, we have a whole suite of bills, the things that we have to do uh, there. When you talk about the grid, if we were going to electrify our homes and electrify transportation, then we would probably double, even triple our electricity use. Well, it's about 50% clean now. We have to get that to 100% clean to get those benefits. Our buildings, it's about another 13%, uh, our homes and our businesses we have to electrify those. Again, that's why even during COVID, when to the perception of many, we shut down the global economy, we only cut GHG emissions about 5% because it's embedded in our buildings, it's embedded in everything. It's in our building materials. Cement and concrete alone are 7 to 8%, 7% or 8% of our global carbon emissions. So you have to tackle building materials. So that's why it really requires this very this focus at every level. I think we do have a couple general priorities, though. One is to strengthen cap and trade. We do have a cap and trade system in California, so we have to continue to strengthen it. And my colleague, Sidney Kamlager, has a bill on that this year. We have to codify carbon neutrality. The goal that Mary mentioned is an executive order for carbon neutrality by 2045. We have to codify that, and the governor's now come out very vocally in support of that. That's something we failed to do last year. So those are a couple of big picture things. I have a bill this year to have our government be, our state government be net zero by 2035. We're going to have the whole state be net zero by 2045. Our government has to lead the way. That's with our procurement, our cars, our buildings, our procurement of energy. We have to lead the way as a state government. So I have a bill there to have the state government lead the way. So I think there are a few big picture things that we can do, making sure the pathway and the measurement for corporations to help drive this change. There's another bill uh, this year. So there's some big picture things 
uh, that we have to do. And then a lot of also very uh, specific things we do to move to 24-7 clean energy for our grid, to increase our transmission, all these other areas. I and others have bills in all those areas as well. The only thing I would add here is, you know, everything the senator said about we have to lower carbon emissions the quickest. And our biggest emitters right now on carbon emissions are transportation, buildings, and unfortunately, extreme wildfires now. At the same time as we're lowering carbon emissions the fastest we possibly can and putting all of that in law, accelerating our targets to do that, putting it in law so it actually stands the test of time and we can implement and investing in rapid, accelerated, scalable implementation. We need to invest in resilience to protect communities because unfortunately we're already in the climate crisis and we're already seeing the catastrophic impacts. So while we're working on lowering carbon emissions to prevent it from getting catastrophically worse, we need to invest in protecting communities right now with solutions like urban greening and conservation. The reasons this isn't happening in the state of California, you would think, right, like California, when you look at the map of the country, it's bright blue. And so why aren't we just putting all of these? We believe in science here in California. Why aren't we putting all of these just into implementation right now? And there are some really tough political pieces to this. To solve the climate crisis, we have to transition away from pollution. What causes pollution? oil and gas, extraction, drilling, burning. And these are really powerful companies that would be impacted as we transition away from what they've been invested in in decades. These are companies that spend the most on elections and lobbying in the state of California. Big oil and gas spend the most on elections and lobbying in the state of California. In addition, we know that 60% of legislators in the state legislature 50% of Democratic legislators take direct money from oil companies. So we are in this place where even though we have a ton ton of Democrats in office, a lot of those are what we call mod Democrats, who unfortunately have kind of partnered up with corporate polluters and Republicans and make it really tough for champions like Senator Becker to get big stuff passed. We have a chunk of legislators, I would say a little over a third, who are in a position, who are championing, have a vision, leading on climate justice. The problem is you can't get bills passed with a third of the legislature. We need 62 legislators to really be champions on this. And so we're at a place where we are unfortunately, like a lot of different other government institutions, suffering at the hands of corporate funding and politics and corporate polluters funding and politics. The governor has done some good things. What we need the governor to do is do more and get involved in the legislative process. We've got to have the governor come out with a vision and goals that isn't just measuring us ourselves on what other countries or states are doing or what we've done in the past. A lot of times we get leaders who are like hailing, this is more than we've ever done. Unfortunately, more is not going to cut it. More won't win the climate crisis. What we have to do is meet what science tells it's going to take us to do this transition. And we need a governor who's going to get involved in the legislative process collaboratively with leaders in the Senate and the Assembly to create a vision every year of key climate priorities that we can get done legislatively. Because executive actions are great. We have to use every tool in the toolbox to solve the climate crisis. 
I am not saying we don't use those. The problem is we have seen firsthand that regulatory work and executive actions are vulnerable. They're vulnerable based on who's the head of the Supreme Court, how, who's in power in the Supreme Court, and we can actually say that, in power in the Supreme Court, what majorities we have in the Supreme Court, and they're vulnerable to who's in office. And we saw it through the Trump years. And now we're seeing it as part of the Supreme Court in the Biden years. So executive orders and regulatory work is not sufficient. We've got to have legislative action as well. And we have to have significant, significant funding beyond what we've had before. That's what's needed, even though you think it's like a no-brainer. We're not there yet. There's really so much at stake in what you're working on and what happens in California because of the impact our state has on other states and other parts of the world. So I'm curious, when you think about all the work you're doing on climate, what are the most important ideas or actions in terms of how we influence others? Well, I have to say that there's really a couple goals because one, we need to show that we can make these changes and still grow our economy, still provide for our citizens. And that is what we've done. We've actually reduced our emissions by uh, about 20% over 1990 levels, and we've grown our economy 60%. So that's one important piece, one important role for California to show, yes, we can do this, we can cut down on pollution, cut down our emissions, and continue to grow the economy, number one. And then two, yes, we are fifth largest economy in the world, so just we have an impact on CO2 ourselves through reduction. But if we're going to do more than that, then we have to reduce in a way that provides models for the rest of the world. And three, we can create markets, use our market power to bring down the cost of technologies so that others can adopt more quickly. When you think about solar, which again, wasn't just us, but the price of solar has come down 90% over 10 years, 300% over the last really 35 years. And that was Germany and California and New Jersey, a few other states that really, by just installing more, brought down the cost. So we take an issue like cement, which, as I mentioned, cement and concrete are 7% of the world's carbon emissions. Well, I, I got a bill passed last year that's actually the only net zero target for any segment of the California economy right now is on cement with this bill I passed last year working with the cement industry. If we can create a market for low carbon cement and concrete and create and spur that innovation because there's a market here, then that brings down the cost for the rest of the world. So those are the three things I'd point to. I just want to double down on what the senator said about California has a role to play that we can prove we can do this, right? Like right now, we're all kind of like the news that comes out, the headlines we're seeing about climate impacts and the news that comes out what science scientists are telling us we have to do by when. We know that we're all feeling a little nervous, whether we're doomed or whether we can actually get this done. And the hopeful thing is that we have the solutions. And California's job is to prove we can do this. And so everything that Senator Becker said, I would just add a couple of very specific things right now and highlight a couple of things. You know, Senator Becker mentioned using our market power globally, right, as the fifth largest economy. We know because we've talked to companies that when California puts in rules, regulations, demands on companies to change, it has a ripple effect globally because California is too big of a market for companies to change their business just for California. It has a ripple effect on their business across the board. 
that's powerful and we need to leverage that in every single way. The other thing I would say is not only do we want to prove we can solve the climate crisis, we want to define how we solve the climate crisis. And this is really important because we are going to get to a place where we won't have to convince people that everybody's running for higher grounds because things have gotten so bad. But at that point, communities will be left behind. At that point, communities of color, women, children, vulnerable communities, the elderly will be left behind and suffering the worst. They're already suffering the worst, but even more in exponential ways. What we want to do in California is we want to prove we can solve the climate crisis and use it as a large-scale tool to address economic, social, racial disparities. Because we have to transform our economy and our infrastructure if we're going to solve the climate crisis. Our economy and our infrastructure is where inequalities show up. It's how we've designed our oppressive systems. So our ability to use acting on climate to be able to advance equity is huge. It cannot be overstated. So we want to define how we prove we can do it, define how we solve it with a focus on equity and justice. And I would say there's a couple areas where we're seeing a lot of opportunity on this right now for places to dig in. One is the state budget. As the climate crisis gets worse and worse and worse, we are going to need government jurisdictions, full-on other countries, our country, and other states to start using the state budgeting process, the general funds, to solve the climate crisis. And that is new. That is different. We say, if you want to know what a government cares about, you look at their budget, right? If you want to know what their real priorities are, you look at the budget. The climate crisis has always been a fringe issue that, you know, California, we, we pay for the climate crisis out of cap and trade revenues, but it's never really been part of the budget. Um, and that's very similar for other jurisdictions, states, countries, is that it hasn't been a core priority as part of a, a government's budgeting process. That is shifting as the cost of inaction is becoming more and more clear to governments. And that has shifted radically for California in the last couple of years, as you're seeing investments um, in the tens of billions of dollars happening last year and this year as part of our state government's budgets. And those investments are going to resilience and to lowering carbon emissions in really critical ways. That needs to increase. And what also needs to happen is that it needs to be integrated into all other areas of the budget. If public funding is going to anything, we need to be advancing equity and sustainability as part of it. Using government budgets as a tool for climate action is something California is leading in and needs to be adopted widespread. And then just the last thing I would say is California has one of the only climate um, ballot initiatives on the ballot in November. And this would be a transformative ballot initiative that would generate over $4 billion a year to both fight and prevent wildfires, catastrophic wildfires, as well as 80% of the money would be to transition our transportation to electrification, which includes transit. It includes clean cars. 50% of that money would go to underserved communities, charging infrastructure, medium heavy duty. We are going to need initiatives like that are going to be essential to solving the climate crisis. So looking at big ticket, sustainable, ongoing funding to solve the climate crisis, 
more dedicated visionary funding in our budgeting process. Those are two ways that California is on the precipice of acting in a big way that should be models globally. Mary, let's dive in a little more because you brought up the important issue of equity and how this is an issue of justice, not just sustainability. And I believe that you're working on this through Assembly Bill 2419, also known as the California Justice 40 Act. I'm aware that the federal infrastructure bill also included a Justice 40 provision, but that it's left to the states to implement it, and not everyone is doing so. Tell us just briefly, what is it that the Justice 40 Act is doing and why it matters? Okay. So first of all, I want to say, yes, the Biden administration did Justice 40 first, but before the Biden administration did Justice 40, California did California Environmental Screen which mandated there are bills, SB 525, that mandate that a certain percentage of all climate funds in California, revenue from California's landmark cap and trade policy, would go to underserved communities. So before Biden did Justice 40, California did it first. And a lot of coalition groups, environmental justice groups led that effort. Um, Former Senate President Kevin DeLeon was a part of that. That was huge. So Biden, again, it's an example of when California moves out first and says acting on climate needs to be focused on the communities that have experienced the most exploitation, pollution um, to date. California set those markers, defined who those communities were, and set aside funds to benefit them specifically in climate solutions. And then Biden came around and said, we're going to do that too with the infrastructure package. So the Justice 40 that Biden did says that 40% of the infrastructure bill that was passed in the Congress last year has to be dedicated towards underserved communities. Now, you know, we have work to do to make sure that's enforced and that has teeth to it. That was an executive action. That's important. It doesn't actually have policy, um, kind of the legally defensible legislative action uh, tied to it. But that is what the bill you're talking about in the state legislature would do. It would make it law for California. So Assemblymember Isaac Bryan, partners on the ground like APEN are working on this with Enviro voters um, in partnership as well to ensure that that commitment that President Biden made around the infrastructure package is actually codified in law here in California because it's not federally. So it would ensure that in California, infrastructure funding coming from the federal government from that big infrastructure package that was passed last year in Congress, 40% of it would benefit underserved communities here in California. Okay, let's turn now to the drama that is playing out in Washington. We talked about this a bit at the top of the episode, but let's go deeper into it. After being the sole barrier to passing historic climate legislation, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin finally came around and made a deal. This happened just as President Biden's administration was looking at taking executive action, and even as congressional staffers staged a sit-in in Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's office. Why did Manchin come around? And what does the now called Inflation Reduction Act mean? If any of us had a window into Senator Manchin's brain, I would just say like we'd have a lot more done as part of what this administration and this Senate and House of Representatives promised a year and a half ago to voters. 
I think the headline is this. I don't think it's a coincidence that the moment when climate impacts are really reaching headlines globally, people are experiencing devastating floods, wildfires, extreme heat globally, that these issues are likely pulling strongly in Mansion's own district right now. And so what we know from pulling across the state of California And California is a microcosm of the country. Let's be clear. Like California isn't bright blue. We have some of the reddest places in the state of California, some of the worst climate deniers and most extreme right wing political leaders have been from California. Congressmember McClintock, Daryl Issa, McCarthy, like all these folks are from California. We create the best and the worst politically here in this state. And so we really do reflect the nation. And what we know from polling and focus groups in every part of the state, even the brightest red parts of the state, is that while people don't agree on the term climate change, the Trump administration was completely successful in politicizing the term climate change. What people do believe in and do think the governor need, the government needs to do more on is the impacts of climate change. They believe that wildfires are getting worse and are scary, that pollution is getting worse, that extreme heat, drought, flooding, they are all in that the government needs to do more on climate impacts. They also are deeply supportive of climate solutions. Again, as long as you talk about clean energy, electrifying buildings and transportation, those things, urban greening, conservation, those things pull really highly regardless of affiliation and demographic. Addressing climate impacts pull really highly, regardless of affiliation. It's just when you use the word climate change, the Trump administration has been really successful at politicizing that. So my guess is that's what's happening in Manchin's district in this moment of crisis too. And so he was like, look, I'm going to get more from doing something here than I am from holding this back. That's a guess. Again, what drives that man is a mystery to me. I would say this though, we put a lot of pressure on Manchin and I think that's appropriate. And on cinema, those two senators, we also need to put pressure on Republicans. As in, it's important to remember that all 50 Republican senators are opposing climate action that actually would accelerate industries that are critical to our future. Exactly. That's the point. You know, there's still a lot of, we have a voterama coming up, right, on this bill where all the legislators are going to be saying what they like about it, what they want to see in it. We still are, need to pick up a couple other, secure a couple other votes. I'm really hopeful. And there's a lot of good things in this bill. Again, we can talk through some of those. There's also some tough stuff in this bill. But if this were to pass, it would be by far the single largest investment in climate action in our government's history. And that is the headline. I'd love to talk a little bit more about what it takes to get people engaged. I'm a big fan of John Doerr's recent book, Speed and Scale, which lays out a clear set of priorities for climate action. And one of them is to make climate a top two voting issue around the world. I'd love to hear from both of you on this. Does climate need to be a top electoral issue? And if so, how do we get there? Mary, what do you think? I mean, what you're saying is at the core of my organization's work, right? We're California environmental voters. So I couldn't agree more. I mean, essentially, we are supposed to live in a democracy that's driven by voters' priorities and action. What I would say is this, is that most times of year, climate impacts are a top two priority in the state of California. Again, like I said, regardless of where you live, what your political affiliation is, When we talk about what the catastrophic impacts are, 
Again, it's not necessarily if you say it's climate change. If you say is addressing wildfires, catastrophic wildfires, pollution, extreme heat and drought a priority? Where would you rank it on your priorities, especially in a moment right now? That's going to get top one or two. So I think, especially in California, voters are already there. And we've seen that backed up by focus groups and polling data. Year after year, those numbers are increasing. I would say since about the 2020 election cycle, climate change in that way has been a top one, two, three priority for California voters. And it's only increased over the years. So I think we're there. I think the challenge we have is we've also seen from focus groups and polling that voters don't know that we have policy solutions for this stuff. They actually don't know that we can solve this. It feels unsolvable. It feels uncontrollable. It feels scary. And that's where we get some apathy, where people don't even want to think about something that is so scary that they have no power to fix. Our job is to say we have the solutions. They're there. We have champions like Senator Becker working hard on them in Sacramento. The challenge is we don't have the political leadership yet that is investing in them and scaling them at the rate that's necessary. So I think what's really key just to tack on is Yes, we need voters prioritizing, but we also need to evangelize that this is solvable, that we have the solutions, and our job is to hold political leaders accountable. Senator, how would you build on this? And particularly, you're someone that has been elected. You were successful at and to speaking to voters about climate. And so I'm curious, what do you think works? And what do you think we need to do to get more people on board? Well, as Mary said, we do need to convey that this solvable and that we can do it. Absolutely. And success begets success where people see examples. They see their neighbor with an electric car. Oh, I should do that. They hear about a neighbor who electrified their home and got a heat pump. They didn't know what a heat pump was. Oh, you get air conditioning. That's great. And no greenhouse gases. That's amazing. So I think success begets success. Does that have to be a top two issue? I don't know. Maybe. But Really, if we create the markets, at this point, solar and wind are the cheapest things to build. So there's lots of solar and wind being built. Now we have to make sure we build other things to complement solar and wind. So we bring down the cost enough, people will come along because it's better. It's cheaper. I can drive an electric vehicle to Sacramento for my house. It costs about $11. In a comparable non-electric vehicle, it'll be about $50 right now. So These technologies are better in many ways, but we have to make them accessible. But we do need leadership and people to talk about it. And it's been fantastic to have our governor be really vocal uh, recently, his letter to our Air Resources Board. We can't tell what happens in the Democratic caucus, but he came to our caucus and spoke to all of us just today. He's really focused and prioritizing uh, this issue and talking very passionately about it and putting the force of his administration behind it. So that's really important and, and really tremendous to see. The, the more people continue to talk about it, and again, to not think of it as a trade-off, we're not trading off economic growth. That's why I said we've decreased our emissions 20%. We grew our economy 60% in California. So people need to know that this is doable. It's obviously critical for our future of quality of life, but also for our future jobs and our future economy here in this country. So beyond voting, what should we all be doing? What are the most effective ways for everyday people to accelerate climate policy making 
and decarbonization. Senator, let's start with you. Well, when you say get involved, absolutely. But you know, people can run for. I was an advocate for many years. This is really the this is the first elected office I've held. It was representing a million people now in the California State Senate. So, and but I also represent twenty five cities, and each of these cities, uh, many of them are doing really innovative work. Uh, Menlo Park has led. They did the first all electric new construction reach code, and now it's been adopted by many big and small cities across the area. So you can run for a city council, be on a commission. We have environment commissions in all these cities. That is really a way to actually get political power, as Mary talked about. We need political power because it is a political will issue, as she laid out. The technology is there. You know, we, you know, I've been working on this stuff since the early 90s, and you know, we knew we could make progress, but technology was not there in many areas. Technology is there now, and we need the political will. So certainly get involved, register, write, vote, but also run for office. I love that answer. And if you're running for office as a climate champion, a climate justice champion, please contact California Environmental Voters. Part of what we do is help climate justice champions get elected and be successful. The only thing I would add to what Senator Becker just said is we have to hold our leaders accountable. So many voters are disenfranchised because they feel like their elected leaders only talk to them 60 days before the election day. And what happens the rest of the year is just far away, confusing, and doesn't get communicated to voters in an accessible, engaging way. It's hard that this stuff is all on the burden of like hardworking folks who have full-time jobs and families and communities to support. But the truth is the only way that we combat the power of corporate polluters in politics is if voters hold their leaders accountable. Hold them accountable by asking them publicly on social media what they're doing what corporate dollars they're taking, what they're doing on wildfires, on extreme heat, on pollution, on the drought, by calling their office, by showing up, by getting involved. If you want to figure out ways to get involved, www.envirovoters.org has a lot of easily packaged actions and accountability that you can send around to your friends and you can kind of figure out how your legislator is doing with our environmental scorecard that scores every legislator in the state. Um, You can see how they're voting on different issues. You can call, there's a phone number on that website. You can call them up and say, hey, why didn't you vote on these clean water policies that were in the legislature last year? Holding legislators accountable Throughout, I mean, democracy is a 365 day a year exercise, not just the 60 days before you vote and the day you have to vote. So we need to hold our leaders accountable. Your specific state and federal legislators specifically state that is the key right now on investing and prioritizing in things that will protect our future. Senator, I'd be remiss to not ask you this since we have you here and I get this chance. Mary just spoke really eloquently about the different channels and different ways to hold elected leaders accountable. And there you are sitting here in a seat of power. What actually makes the most difference to you? You're probably hearing signals from all sorts of sources, social media, letters, and phone calls. What are the ways voters actually reach you and have an influence? Well, I always say that if somebody volunteers for you, you remember that person. If someone volunteers in a campaign, 
volunteers to send letters. That is something that you remember absolutely. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, we do keep track of all the letters that come into our office. And, you know, starting out as a staffer, you often answer those questions, but you track that. And I certainly pay attention to what are we hearing from our constituents. So that's really, you know, social media, yeah, somewhat, but it tends to be kind of the hardcore on either side. So maybe it gets tuned out a little bit. But, uh, you know, if people contact our office with letters for emails, we do keep track of that for sure. Senator Becker, Mary, thank you both so much for joining this conversation and for all the work you're doing. No, this was great. Thank you. Appreciated the conversation. Thanks for having us. Now is the time in California for sure. Now is the time for our country to take action. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again. 